Welcome to a special edition of the special series within the specials podcast of two super special guys. Simon, are you special? I'm very special. <laughs> well, that special guy over there is Simon Cross. I'm Lorcan Mullen. We're your Let Me Tell You Something co-hosts. And this is an edition of the Meltzer Five Star Project. But we're doing something a little bit different here. We're coming up to the 200th episode Regular episode of this series, hard to believe, but that's where we are, and that's how Dave Meltzer rates wrestling matches in recent years. The plan has always been for us to talk about matches that Meltzer's rated five stars or higher. But in an interesting twist of the tale, in a recent issue of Wrestling Observer, we saw him declare something five stars, but it's not a match. It was an angle. After a match that I think he rated three stars or three and a half stars. We're not specifically just going to talk about all that angle. But Simon, if you want to quickly tell us which one it was. So the angle he was referring to was the angle that took place after the Undisputed Universal title match. Between Roman Reigns and Kevin Owens at the Royal Rumble. Where Sami Zayn, after going through a very deep internal conflict disobeyed Roman's orders to hit Kevin Owens with a chair and instead hit Roman with a chair. So turning his back on the bloodline, but in a very, very Sophie's Choice manner. So yeah, Dave Meltzer said that the match itself was three and a half stars, but the whole angle, which I suppose the match is a part of in his eyes, pushes it up to five stars. And so that got me thinking. Now, I don't think Dave Meltzer is going to suddenly start rating every angle in wrestling on a star rating. Even scale. he needs to sleep at some point. Yeah, but it did get me thinking what constitutes a five-star angle. And so this is going to kind of be a merging of both the Meltzer five-star project, but also a traditional let-me-tell-you-something format. To quote Mr. Peanut Butter, what is this, a crossover episode? <laughs> I smell a cheesy crossover. And if you ever want to bring a five-star project into a let-me-tell-you-something episode, no, No, we're not going to do that. that. (laughs) Would you first of all agree with that, Simon? Would you say that this is... Well, would you even be able to even start to wonder as to how you would quantify angles on a star rating system anyway? You know, we've already had a go at star ratings, uh, you know, ad nauseum on this podcast. But do you think you could watch an angle and unprompted of what Meltzer said about this, say, I give that angle five stars. Some of the time when we discuss matches that have been rated five stars, we factored in that, I think I use the uh, verbiage specifically, that I'm coming in cold to this. Like, I've not watched the preceding matches or the preceding angles or promos surrounding it. So sometimes that affects my like ratings of like looking at a five-star match, is it five stars? Because I don't know. Would I make it five stars if I knew all the ins and outs specifically rather than viewing it in isolation? 
So let's say, for example, on the other end of the scale, if you hadn't seen any of the months of build-up and storylines and angles and just went in cold on, say, for example, the Sasha Banks-Bailey match at NXT TakeOver Brooklyn, Mm. would you say that was a five-star match, which I think you did at the time? I did, yeah. Or would you feel like if it was just the match you were watching... You can gauge its importance through the crowd, but it doesn't give you that personal uh, inspiration necessarily. Unless you can be just taken with it with the story they've been able to tell in the match itself. Mm, it's different to, like, unexperience things and uh, and give you, like, a definitive answer as to whether I would have definitely given it a different rating. But the, the what I could say, without a shadow of a doubt, is... Me knowing all the story and, and and therefore feeling an emotional connection to the story definitely influenced my decision. But and that, that got me thinking specifically about this five star angle because the, the angle that they gave five stars the, the the effective not even payoff really the effective payoff of that chapter of the bloodline story was it five stars in of its own universe? It was he giving five stars. To the whole story so far. Well, that was funny because just by coincidence, I happened to re-listen around the last couple of weeks to us talking about the Kenny Omega Adam Page blow-off match. At, was it Full Gear? Full Gear. It's the autumn one. It was the one where Adam Page won the belt after more than a year's worth of storyline build-up to it. Really, the story that had been built up to at least since. Page lost to Chris Jericho in the original title decider match. And I said that it's not a five-star match in and of itself, but it's a five-star storyline. But then it got me wondering. Now, I didn't give any matches in that series because they had a couple. They'd had one the year before, which was the number one contendership, which Omega won that then led to him beating John Moxley. They'd also had, like, elimination matches, so on and so on and so on. I I mean, you could argue within the storyline... Adam Page and Kenny Omega against the Young Bucks, that would be a five-star match, I suppose. But were there any angles within that storyline that I would give five stars to? Or is it just their collective work together over a number of series? It's kind of like how like, Avengers Endgame, in and of itself, is a movie that I would be generous in giving like a, a, a decent seven out of ten. Like That's as high as I could go with it as a movie in its own right. But... Moments like, you know, spoilers for Avengers Endgame, but moments like Captain America lifting up Mjolnir and using it in battle against Thanos, that's a five-star moment, a five-star scene, a five-star angle within the larger match of Avengers Endgame and the larger narrative of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in Infinity Saga. The Avengers versus Thanos feud, basically. <laughs> Great blow-off at their WrestleMania match. Yeah. And so that also makes me wonder, could you have angles that are five stars in storylines that then peter out towards the later stages and maybe never live up to the the merits of that angle? Yes. We'll go into more details with that because there's a very, very, very obvious one I'm guessing we've both got in our heads. I think you've read my mind here, yes. And is that angle... Well, okay, let's just count down one, two, three, and say it, and see if we both say it at the same time, okay? After three. One, two, three. Sting attacking Hogan. Oh. Oh, okay. You're right, but I think I'm also right. 
Sting attacking Hogan. Sting finally attacking Hogan when he like descended from the rafters. Oh, okay, okay. Because you you look at when Sting finally beat Hogan, it was with that fake fast count, and Bret Hart was weirdly involved, and it it got needlessly messy. So that was a poor due to backstage politicking and the like. It was that was a poor payoff. But but when Sting, who had just been the silent observer for so long finally came down and pointed his bat at Hogan and Hogan sold it like he'd he'd seen like death himself points at him. That angle was so I I think that is a true five star angle. Because it's like this guy is the guy that can stop this this scourge of the NWO. Okay. Well with that in mind, let us therefore go to what was, as we were saying, it's like a mixture of two different format episodes. But instead of us ending it on uh, our Mount Rushmore of this topic, we're going to use that as a launching pad of seeing four other examples that we can both think of, of angles that we would say, if anything's a five-star angle, these are four examples. We're not then going to make a definitive one like we do with Mount Rushmore. But we're just going to give four examples. So, Simon, I'm just curious. Was that one of your four? Yes. Yes, it was. Okay. Well, you might as well go off with your other three. Uh, the second one, I'm loath to say a modern classic. And it, in terms of the way certain things were done in the Sami Zayn one, it was recently called back to. And that is the breakup of the shield. Mm. That's uh, a very curious one. Okay. For two, it's mainly the surprise for me, that puts it onto the Rushmore. Like, they had just, like, swept, literally swept Evolution in a, um elimination match. Like, they were the cat's tits. Like, we'd only just done a couple of, one or two matches with the Wyatts, who were still hot at the time. And it's like, these guys have only just turned face. Where do we go? What do we do? Oh, it's all imploding. It's all... <laughs> everything's just falling apart what's going on and it's like where do we go from here and then we ended up with a clearly defined pecking order down the line in Vince's eyes anyway and what have you but we had this like hot thing that there was literally the hot thing at the time and in a WWE universe where things are usually horses are flogged way past the point that they die for the iron to be struck so hot in that phase of uh, WWE booking was was surprising in and of itself. So that's that's why that's there. It's sort of iconic, and it did set up like for for all like the, the hyperbole that Hulk Hogan has around it. I can't say him being the third man because that was that was a match in of itself. So I'm not I'm not counting that as an angle. But I did Hulk Hogan has been involved in a lot of these moments. So I'm going to go with. Uh, the angle where he discovers that Andre the Giant's been hanging out with Bobby Heenan and he has that cross ripped off of him and he like hard, well, he hard, end up get bleeds hard way from it because that set up WrestleMania 3. That set up the moment which is etched in, literally etched in history. And I know Hogan going on about it so much and making Andre the Giant heavier each time has took a little of the shine off of it, but you can argue that it's the biggest match in the history of wrestling, or at least modern wrestling. Yeah. And it was basically all set up in almost only one angle. Yeah. Which we'll get into more 
as we go on. And one angle with only a couple of, like, barely a couple of months before, I think, uh, WrestleMania 3 happens. So they didn't have time to, you know, get get everyone's, get everything in motion. So those are your three so far. What's your fourth one? Fourth one, there's a lot of Canadian influence in this. The list of KO. The Festival of Friendship. Because they took something which was kind of throwaway at the beginning, like those two hanging out. And it just became this really fun thing where they were like the scourge of Roman Reigns and stuff like that. It's the delivery of Jericho's line, how come my name's on here? Yeah, with, Before the, he... with, the, with the framing of the camera, which was done extremely well as well. Yeah. That switch from comedy to utter seriousness in such a split second. Yeah. It's all very impressive. And, and unfortunately, we've, we've mentioned petering out. And they've come out and said they didn't like where it was positioned on the card. Well, certainly Jericho has. That should never have opened a night of WrestleMania or been where it was on the card. I think it was like match three or something like that. It was it was a ve- in a very inconsequential spot on the card. And wasn't it also like the first time that Vince basically gave Kevin Owens like an I'm disappointed in you sort of thing? Yeah. Which I think is as much just Vince, like, fucking with someone's head as to whether or not he is or isn't happy with how an angle turned out. I do also recall that Jericho said that he had to push hard for, like, that whole angle and elements of that angle with Triple H. That Triple H was resistant to certain ideas. So that's always put me in the back of my mind that when everyone thinks when Triple H takes over, it's all going to be perfect, brilliant angles going forward. I'm like, these blinds are some stuff, man. Some great stuff might be missed under Triple H, just as it will be under Vince. I mean, you can read to the Bray Wyatt stuff at the minute. Yeah, but I mean, we can do a whole we can do a whole series about Bray Wyatt. I'm not going to, for the love of God. But, <laughs> and there's no Bray Wyatt on my list. I will say that much. And your list it's, contains what exactly? What, what is curious, actually, is that it did contain two of yours. So I've uh, hastily removed those and put them within my uh, my backup candidates. Okay. Um, so the two that I was going to include were Sting officially fighting against the NWO. I've got it marked down as Uncensored 97 because like, up to that point there was always this mystery of whose side he was on and he even turned, like, stood with the NWO like in the build-up to that. And then he just unleashes on everyone. But I don't recall it being Hogan. In, like, Hogan actually didn't engage with Sting for ages at that and he was... At ringside with Dennis Rodman pumping him up and like yeah. you know massaging his shoulders, so that was going to be one. And Andre turning on Hogan on Piper's pits and cra- ripping the cross from his neck and everything. Oh, I've just thought of one which I think you'll have, but I've just had a. You know when you have a blind spot, yeah. I think you'll have it though. I mean, I could have just loaded this with WWE WWF angles, but I wanted wanted to limit it to two. And I, I wanted one of them to at least be from the classic era. I actually had both of them were going to be from the classic era, the 80s era. So I'll give them in chronological order, actually. So my oldest one is Jake the Snake Roberts using his Cobra on Randy Savage. Because oh. that was a real, like, basically as edgy as wrestling could get in 1991. Didn't Savage push for that? with Jake. It's like, yeah, yeah. Let him do it. Let him do it. <laughs> the funny thing is that the, the snake was de-venomized before the thing happened and then it, the snake itself actually died a few days afterwards. Oh. So it might have actually been 
<laughs> You're mm. not locked. I'm not locked in here with you. You're not locked, locked in, in here with, with me. <laughs> I mean, how much cocaine can a snake consume? <laughs> yes, it's a big question. Actually, I mean, these won't actually be chronological. I'll give my other WWF one then, which was. It was kind of two parts within the... I think it's in the same episode. If it's not, then I'll do the second half of it. But it was when Bret Hart turned on the American audience on Raw and attacked Shawn Michaels. But even more importantly was after that when he ran in during Owen Hart and the British Bulldogs match where they were still tag champs, but they'd completely fallen out with each other when David Boy won the European title. So they were having a match even though they were tag team champions. How will they ever coexist? Mm. And Brett ran in, stopped it, took the microphone and basically told them that they were only fighting because of the Americans' fans and telling Owen that he loved him. And this idea that maybe just for the last three years, that's what Owen really wanted to hear. Yeah. And pointing out to Davy Boy, when we fought in London in front of the English fans, we both got the reception we deserved. And, you know, what I loved about... I've said forever, like, to me, at that age, it wasn't Brett turning heel on the Americans. It was the American fans turning heel on Brett. And when they're hugging, the three of them in the in the ring, hugging and forming the Heart Foundation, Brett has this look of sort of contempt, but also, like, arrogance. And there's so much you could read into that as, like... He's look, projecting either moral superiority over the fans or he's got a look of, can you believe what I just manipulated these two mm. into just now doing my bidding and being my disciples for this time? Similar to the Roman Reigns thing, really. Roman Reigns just makes more explicit the uh, the, the verbal abuse element to it. But if they had gone down that road, if the Heart Foundation had continued on, that could have been a fascinating storyline to do a year down the road where Owen turns face on Brett and then we could have had a face Owen against a he or Brett storyline in 1998 or something what could have been there you know but that's all sorts of sad things I wanted to include the WCW angle and again I've got a few I've got quite a few runners up for that but I'll just go for the one that I do think it's just like I said I was going to go with Sting but I will just go with Hogan forming the NWO because I do count that as an angle because essentially from the moment Hogan drops the leg on Savage that's the end of the match anyway, really. If the whole, if we're going to accept that the Sami Zayn thing is a five-star angle, well, the match is an element of that angle anyway. Yeah. Do you know what partially censored myself? Because I thought, if I don't say it, you will. Because it is a, it is a seminal moment. It's, it's one of the most important moments in pro wrestling. And it's a moment we've kept wanting, hence us dreaming of the Cena heel run and now... It feels like with Roman Reigns, we're getting that run that we'd always wanted. Like, this is the best heel run of a former beloved face since Hogan's NWO run. There's so much of the bloodline that is, like, an even better version of the NWO in many ways. Like, And, and even Eric Bischoff, I think, has basically conceded that the bloodline is a better storyline than the NWO ever was. Yeah. And my final one, I wanted to go to Japan. Because they don't get that many. And this one was part of the Meltzer Five Star Projects. And admittedly, I don't know a lot of the backstory into it. I read into it and they were like... It, it makes sense really for as best as I could gather from the Wikipedia one. And it was the end of a match between Manami Toyota and Toshio Yamada. Where their rivalry got so intense that they took it all on... The, well, not only the title was on the line, but it was a hair versus hair match. Right, yep, yep, yep. Toyota wins the match... And it's after she wins that she realises what her once friend, now rival, is going to have to do. 
and she's desperately trying to stop it from happening and even starts cutting at her own hair. And I just love that idea of like a twist on the idea that you do this so much that you want to get the consequence of it and they actually don't want them to go through with it eventually. It's something that I definitely think, I was saying again, like if Sasha Banks Bailey had continued on, if they'd have gone into WWE and the storyline had continued to get more and more epic. They might have pitched that. That could have been a great way to do it. It's a big ask for a woman wrestler to lose there. You know, it was the only way Molly Holly knew she could get onto WrestleMania 20 was basically to offer her hair up. Yeah, yeah. When you mentioned, obviously, like, you know, the face or, or an opponent afterwards just, like, looking at themselves, like, where have I taken this to? There's that whole, and we've, we have touched on it before, the whole Magnum TA Tully Blanchard thing where he's staring at his own blood-covered hands, like... What have I become? Well, I remember you saying that this that felt like more of an angle than a match. To you. Yeah, yeah, because it was like it wasn't even the way they wrestled wasn't even like a wrestling match. And that makes you wonder, like you know, what what is the match? Is the match just bell to bell, and therefore you can't factor that into what you're going to give the rating of the match itself, or is it because that whole thing is only like an extra one minute to the thing? Do you count it, or because that whole and then we got the Sami Zayn thing. So if it was like, you know, the post-match then doesn't count towards the five star. You know, that's why it's so kind of crazy to the notion of giving an angle five stars. You know, giving a scene in a movie five stars is kind of crazy. But but, but like I mentioned, I don't, I don't think he, he was. I know that's what he wrote, but I don't think that's what he meant. I think he was giving the story so far five stars. Well, that's the question as well, because by us saying things like, obviously us bringing up two NWO angles, it's fair to say that the NWO storyline never got a good resolution at any point, in any of the many times it was seemingly resolved. So with Hogan as the third man, to to take yours, for example, there was like these three former people from the other side who had... um now like running roughshod you had the two direct invaders and then like the turncoat from within being hogan and i've read like several accounts of a lot of people have said like the moment they started adding members it it sort of diluted the impact yes but the basic problem was that it didn't go down the way that it needs to go with a you know a satisfactory resolution you thought you well, were they just kept beating everyone <laughs> Yeah, they kept beating everyone, but the idea was, well, when Sting wins it, then you could have gone. And they were already, like, that was when they were starting to do the whole interfighting amongst them around Wolfpack that time. Wolfpack and what happened. And then Wolfpack comes along, and then that's what 98 is. It's as much about babyface NWO and baby and heel NWO, and WCW is like a distant third in the whole situation. You know? Um, and... But that was because NWO just became bigger than any kind of storyline, bigger than any kind of angle. You know, it was just a branding exercise. And that's the key question with the bloodline. Are they going to be willing to kill off the bloodline when it needs to be at that necessary moment for the story? Mm. And also, when do you do it? Because obviously, <laughs> so, so, like, because so many people are saying, like, Sammy has to beat Roman Reigns and he's not going to, so therefore the the, the angle's always going to be dissatisfactory. But what if Sammy doesn't win? But what if Sammy, three or four months down the line, is the guy that 
finally gets Jey Uso to leave, and Jey Uso beats Roman Reigns. Maybe make it some sort of, like, six-man elimination match. Zayn Owens, Jey against Reigns, Solo, Jimmy. And it comes down to Jey against Roman, and Jey gets the win. And the rules are the losing, you know, if the bloodline lose, they have to disband. And if if Owens, Zayn, and Jay lose, then Owens and Zayn are gone from WWE. Or, or I don't know. You got to do it so it's a way that it's feasible, so everyone knows it's not. It's not just going to have to happen like that. And Jay has to come back to the bloodline and can never question Roman Reigns again. See, I I think two stories are going to run concurrently and bleed into each other. Um, I. And this is armchair booking. Sorry, guys, in advance. Yeah, I think Cody beats Roman at Mania, creating... Do you remember when Pac lost to Enzo? Uh, Neville lost to Enzo. And he just, he stopped sleeping, he stopped shaving, he just, like, became a full-on mad king of, like, in decline. You're going to get that. And, and the verbal abuse and the gaslighting and the narcissism from Roman towards the remaining Bloodline members is going to increase. Whilst on the same side, Kevin and Sammy win the tag titles from the Usos or whatever incarnation of the Bloodline defends them at Mania, depending on how they play the schism within it. And then it'll be like, well, you, I would have, Roman can be like, I would have won if you got, if I wasn't, you know, trying to keep you guys in line. You guys distracted me. You cost me. It's all your fault. Um, and then those two, him not being able to deal with his own frailties and they're amplifying his abuse onto the others. Can couple with too, Sammy, yeah. like, yeah, leading yeah, yeah, kind, yeah. kind of thing. But let's not veer too far into it. But what is wonderful is when you can do stuff, like, it's all about, with so much of this is also, as we say, about the history and knowing these things. But... It doesn't have to be something that overwhelms it. It doesn't have to be something where you need to have known this for it to work. For example, one of the most brilliant bits about that angle is how they deliberately mirrored it to how Sammy hitting Reigns in the chair and how Reigns took it exactly mirrors how Seth Rollins hit Reigns with the chair, thus disbanding the shield. Because in that moment, I'm also like, well, in so many ways, like, Reigns has been proven right. Like, he never truly trusted Zayn, and he was right never to truly trust him. He was always posting him and testing him, trying to basically turn him so that he, like, hypnotized him, essentially, like he'd done to Jay. And then Jay's almost having post-traumatic stress flashbacks by witnessing what they then do to Zayn afterwards. But also, him taking the chair, it's almost like you're understanding where the villain's origin story comes from, because he was betrayed once before... And so the reason he's trying to control the bloodline so much is so something like this can never happen to him again. But that by doing it too much, he's created he's, his own like, worst nightmare. Yet again, yeah. And so, you know, it's like the, the line that Michael Hayes gave Mick Foley, that Mick Foley's repeated so many times. A bad guy has to feel completely justified in his actions at all times and Reigns is constantly justifying it to himself everything that he's doing but there was a great great moment like right at the start of it when they were you know it was the first rumble match like two years earlier when Reigns and Owens had that last man standing that had the awkward bit with the handcuffs but I remember them doing that like both in separate rooms cutting promos and Owens just says you are just a big pathetic insecure bully words to that effect and all Reigns did was just do a little look down. 
And it's like it's like a tell in poker. Like you knew you knew in that brief moment that cut to the core and that's what he truly is. You know, and again, that relates all the way back to both the shield and the fact that he could never quite get the fans on his side. And he always felt inferior to Brock Lesnar. So what does he do eventually? Brings in the guy that seemed to get Brock Lesnar to where he was in Paul Heyman. And so, you know, it's just all these great, you know. And it turns out then Brock Lesnar just brings in farm equipment. Some are are arguing like this is the best. Some are arguing that this is the best stuff the WWE's done in like 20 years almost. And I think it can, again, it depends. Like if they pay it off well, then yeah. Like the last storyline I think that they've done of this level on this consistency that works throughout the whole thing, even though it ultimately came from a failed storyline before this was Batista, you know, turning on Triple H gradually and winning the title and then winning each of their follow-up matches. Thus ending also the reign of terror that everyone talked about for two years. But did you need that reign of terror for those two years to get the ultimate vindication of Batista? Did you have to sacrifice Rob Van Dam, Booker T? Well, let's not get into that. But, you know, when you want to talk about non-five-star angles. Did you need uh, the failure of the previous storyline? Well, with the Randy Orton thing. Yes, but that wasn't why they booked it that way. It's just that they booked Randy Orton into the wrong position as a babyface at that point where he just wasn't the right guy and also his his babyface turn his babyface turn wasn't a proactive decision by him it was a decision made against him he didn't turn face the heels turned even more heel on him but does that not the failure of that does that not make the batista thing more sweeter yes but like how with how daniel bryan winning the world title was so sweet it was in spite of what Vince McMahon wanted. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and that's the other one that obviously gripped people, but there were so many mistakes made along the way, whereas pretty much throughout, from the start where they sort of teased the match with Triple H and Batista, like back in sort of November time, I think it was, where it looked like Batista was going to fight him and then it turned out they were faking it, but then they really did do it over time. And just in that one episode, it was like, well, like, Oh yeah, I actually do want to see Batista beat the shit out of him. Yeah. That <laughs> they then just didn't hit a wrong note along the way. Whereas like the f- summer of punk or Daniel Bryan's rise or any John Cena storyline really <laughs> um, outside of maybe Umaga mm-hmm. they they didn't do it right at some point. Yeah. Even the US Open which was like probably his most highly praised run at, at any point was ended with just a nothing loss against Alberto Del Rio with <sighs> Zeb Coulter next to him on a little trike or whatever it was. <laughs> Mex America. Oh, God. I think the basic problem is that we've had a man that's just no patience anymore in Vincent Man. But it's so funny when you look at it because, actually, I'll just give, because I didn't give my um, runner up candidates for the um, five star angles. So some other ones I had were Roddy Piper hitting Jimmy Snooker with the coconut. That's one where it's just that angle. There is nothing else that Piper and Snooker did together before or after that anyone particularly talks about. Is that the feud where he half and halves? No, that's Bad News Brown. That's years Uh. later. And that was him doing that as a baby face, Simon. Uh. (laughs) Wrestling! This one, I had it down before they even referenced it again. And they referenced it in one of your five-star angles. And it's Shawn Michaels turning on Marty Jannetty in the barbershop. That was the one I thought of and I thought you would mention. 
Mm. So you did have it, you just didn't put it in your big It's hole. a template that they followed, you know, they just basically did it almost shot for shots with Toxic Attraction. And they also referenced it when Jericho turned on Michaels, smashing him into the telly. And then Owens, in your one, turning on Jericho, smashing Jericho into the telly. So at some point, Kevin Owens is going to get his head smashed into some sort of glass rectangle. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's it's basically kismet at this point. It's written into the stars. Let's pay it forward. Aye. So I had a couple of Four Horsemen ones. One was where they filmed themselves breaking Dusty Rhodes' arm in a, just like a, they just, they took a camera and... So, and again, it's like one of those things, back in the day they had to argue, explain why these cameras are where they were, and which is just not something they bother with explaining anymore. They just found him, beat him up, and then they hit him with something on his arm. You hear Dusty go, make it good, which some say is like a blooper because it's like he was saying something, trying to like not make it hurt. But to me, I read that as like, it's him saying, well, you better make this hurt. You better just kill me at this Because it's, you know. Sting's good at that. Whenever he got, like, betrayed by fake breakups with the horsemen. There's the one where Flair's like, no, I'll, I'll, I'm done with them now. I'm, I'm, I'm helping you out. And he completely, and Sting's face afterwards of, I'm going to murder each and every single one of you. Well, that was, that was going to be my next one. My other four horsemen was going to be the first time that Flair did that to Sting, which was in 1990, just after he won the Starcade Iron Man Challenge, and Arn and Ole Anderson came back, and they formed the Four Horsemen with Sting. How and is then... Sting so trusting still? <laughs> well, this was this was the first of many, really. But 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 that was brilliant though, because I think the one you're talking about is the one in 1995 when the Four Horsemen reformed. But it, they, it started off as Flair against Anderson, with Brian Pillman getting involved. And and Flair begging Sting for his partnership, and Sting saying, "I will partner with you, but if you do anything to me, if you do it again, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to cripple you." <laughs> but what was so brilliant then is that when Flair does, because Flair does it got, again, because they repeated what they'd done the previous one, where it starts off as Flair against Anderson and Pillman, then Sting turns up and tags in and fights with Flair. So they do it the other way, so it starts off as Sting against Anderson and Pillman, and then Flair turns up in, like, his street clothes or something. Yeah. Fl- Sting tags Flair in, Flair comes in, a, you know, his house of fire, and then just immediately turns around and attacks Sting. It's but so Sting good. almost <laughs> automatically starts fighting, you mother! And <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm telling you, the look on his face as they're all, like, gloating on the ramp, it's, I will kill all of you. <laughs> Another one I've got is like just, just like as a, like it's not, it's barely an angle. Just a guy comes out and starts beating the shit out of people. <laughs> it's so perfect for it, which was, and it, again, one of those things where it just necessity forced it. It's not something that they booked, planned out months and months in advance. It was after Magnum TA has his career-ending injury. They need a top face pronto. And this is before the Berlin Wall. This is before peace accords. This is everything. They just go, let's see what happens if Nikita Koloff... Is a baby face. <laughs> ...have him turn baby face after he's had his series of matches with Magnum TA just before this. And it was like, that was the moment where Koloff came to respect him. And so yeah. he just come, like Dusty just brings him out. And it was like, Nikita? And then Nikita just comes in and just batters the shit out of the four horsemen. <laughs> and it was like, oh my God! Oh, he's men! 
it is weird, like, because we were, the angles we've talked about, we like, had like severe storyline implications, like the ones we've given, and it gave like a, a whole branch of new directions. But I'm I'm playing other examples in my head now, which don't fit that criteria. But I still call. I mean, they're technically moments, not angles. I mean, what would you count Vince McMahon's hospital visit? Well, again, it's like one of those things. Is it, is it if it's a self-contained segments, then yeah, it's like it works as a perfect angle in and of itself, and it furthers the storyline, I suppose, because it's like Austin can get him from anywhere. <laughs> Yeah. And they had established that over time, McMahon's been getting frustrated increasingly over the night with all, like Mick Foley turning up, you know, and all those things. And they keep See, teasing that Austin's going to turn up and he's not. Yeah. Like, he thinks it's going to be Mick and then he thinks Mick's going to bring Austin into the blood and then he thinks it's going to be a stripper that it turns out to be a clown. Yeah. A lady clown and then we see Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, bought, I bought a guest. You bought him? No, no, it's not him. It's a... <laughs> Well, he we'll does a trick with a dog that he won't believe. We'll get into that, but I just wanted to get the last one that I had, and it's not uh, it's not Crockett, it's uh, Bill Watts, Mid-South. And I think it's just one of those things, like, in basically in the 80s, you had just set angles that you can just churn out, and you just and a lot of the time the wrestlers will take the same angle and go from place to place to place with it. Yeah. So I'm just going for this one, which is where the Midnight Express have challenged Magnum TA and Mr. Wrestling to the tag team champions to a title match. And they're saying, well, you've just come. You've not beaten anyone yet. We'll give you the title shot when you deserve it. So, you know, how do we take the shortcut? Well, they literally tar and feather Magnum TA to say he's such a chicken that they just cover him in feathers to show that he's a chicken. And you got Magnum standing there covered in feathers saying, this is the most humiliating moment of my life. But it's such a clever way of, like, you know, you want the revenge. It's a clever way for the heels to get, you know, the shortcuts. It's simple. And that's what they would do. Like, I've seen Ric Flair do this segment. And I guess he, like, would go from territory to territory into it. Because he did it in Georgia with Roddy Piper. I think he did it in Florida with Barry Windham. And the idea is that he's going to do an exhibition with some local talent where they'll show them amateur wrestling techniques. And the babyface is going to provide the commentary explaining what he's doing. So they have these little amateur sequences with, like, local jobbers. Maybe one that's a little bit higher profile, but Flair will still win. Like a real-life technique with Taz, basically. Yeah, yeah. And then Flair challenges the other guy to come in. They do the amateur exchange. Flair loses his one. The babyface wins that one. Flair says we're going to do it again. Then he kicks him. And then they go into a little spot and it ends up with him getting pinned for a three count in an exhibition. Automatically sets you up. Like, I've beaten you. I've beaten you in an exhibition. I can beat you for real. Simple, effective. You don't have to worry about everyone seeing it because it was before satellite tape, you know, other than the tape traders. And you can just milk that for all it's worth for years and years in many ways. You know, just... (laughs) Go back. I think Jim Cornette said it was like a rule of seven years. You can repeat an angle after it's seven years. Like one of the things Jim Cornette always thought, you know, famously Vince Russo made fun of him for saying you just put a box on stage and if someone comes out of a box, they're automatically over. <laughs> but you've seen it like they said, oh, we've got this mystery partner and he's just under this sheet and 
Jim Cornette's like, what, what do you mean? Pulls it out and it's Arn Anderson. He's like, ah! You know, he's, he's doing someone else. And famously, that, that, that box is how they debuted Terry Funk as Chainsaw Charlie. Yeah. All Sting's greatest moment in WWE, I would say, was when Def and Triple H try and give Seth that uh, gift of the statue of himself. And they open the box and it's just Sting standing there. Sting had to be so patient with all this shit he had to go through. Like, he'd sometimes be under a ring for a whole event to get out for the last minute. You are talking about a man who used to travel with the Ultimate Warrior. Yeah. So that if you don't learn patience there... Early tra- be repelled from the top. I mean, it looks so cool. But you could never do that now. Obviously, post-Owen, you could never do that sort of stuff. Well, safety has improved since then, as the halftime, Super Bowl halftime show has shown. Yeah, I just, I wouldn't feel comfortable. One of the reasons you could repeat all these things is because in America, up until, like, arguably Monday Night Raw, TV was just a means to an end of promoting the live shows. Yeah. And so you could just, it was just job matches, it was promos, and it was, you could take, you could film an angle, and that's like three months of house shows, just off of that one angle, basically. Mm. You know, like, Jake the Snake Roberts, Rick Martell... Rick Martel sprays Jake with arrogance, his spray. It blinds Jake. That carries them from, like, before Survivor Series through to WrestleMania 7 where they have the blindfold match. That's six months carried off of basically one angle. They did do promos. And it that does issue. help that it's Jake the Snake doing the yeah. work there, but, yeah, you're right. But, yeah, it's that. It, it's simple stuff. Like It's it's Andre ripping the cross off Hogan. Like, the Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage storyline, maybe that is the greatest storyline in WWE history. It's right up there. That was an alternate of mine. But that's like 12 months of storyline. More, really, if you take it from the moment the Mega Powers forms. So that's like autumn 1987 through to summer 1989. Although, like, the final final match they have with each other is February 1990 with Buster Douglas, which was meant to be Mike Tyson. Ah... But if you take it just for the the key point is WrestleMania 4 to WrestleMania 5, there's really only about... Like, Randy Savage is basically able to run down the whole storyline in one promo in, like, five minutes. You know, <laughs> if you had to do that... If they had to do that and every week they had a show which had to have multiple angles within it, I don't know that you can milk it for a year. They're getting better at it, but, you know, really after the... After Monday Night Raw started, where it did just become about the WWE as a TV show more than anything. Yeah. And it was focused in that venue. It was like this idea of this is happening now, right now. Whereas, it, obviously that was Saturday Night's main event, but that was as much pay-per-view mixed with angles. And they yeah. would often be the biggest angles that would carry them through for the rest of the runs. And Challenge and Superstars and all that would usually just be them recapping those mm. and doing uh, promos. Hulk Hogan with Earthquake. That's one angle on Brother Love, and then Hogan's off screen until, like, just before SummerSlam. Yeah. So that ran for, like, four months without Hogan there, just from one attack they were able to do. Yeah, whereas with a great example of an AEW one, because we haven't really mentioned a lot of the AEW ones. Well, that's going to... Because we're going to get into more of the modern-day stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know, but, like, my point is with... MJF bloodying CM Punk, who was obviously wearing the white t-shirt deliberately just before their dog collar match. That was the angle I was considering putting in my Mount Rushmore for... Yeah. That was AEW. That was what I thought was the best one. 
that whole thing was again brilliant angles but again that was that whole storyline was just three months from one pay-per-view to the next and they had to cram so much into it again they didn't take a wrong step again that's another five-star storyline that probably did have a few five-star angles within there whereas conversely some of them can just be like eddie kingston and cm punk that was basically three angles but because of the quality of what they can do they can get it across yeah. no trouble at all and it and it is eddie kingston who managed to dig them out of an angle going horribly wrong yeah well yeah yeah but again that's just like a little thing at the end of the match you know again yeah. what's the angle what's the match and are they both part of it and like because that happened after the match itself finished but surely that must have affected the ratings people gave that match afterwards yeah. because the explosion was so pathetic. Yeah. And obviously Japan has stuck to that structure, really. Like in Japan, in New Japan, you get maybe 20 angles a year. Mm. Like half of them happen at New Year's Dash. <laughs> the rest, because the backstage promos don't rarely actually count. There's nothing that happens in those backstage promos that's of consequence. We had a great angle just recently where... Kazuchika Okada comes out at the end of a Noah show and hits Kiyomiya with and and right you know for the first time in a long time he's getting booed by a crowd and he loved it he um I am all in for pure arsehole Okada and again everyone goes what when made them go apeshit was that match that tag match where Kiyomiya comes in and kicks him and that is a match technically but it's this the match itself doesn't mean anything. It's this part. So again, it's that blurring of what's a match and what's an angle. But I think what was key as well with the introduction of Raw is also the angles then all started to take place in the ring. If you look at all the old WWF classic angles of the 80s and early 90s, they were almost all in like the novelty interview segments. They were the Piper's Pits, the Snake Pits, the Flower Shop. The Barber Shop. The Paul Bearer's um, Funeral Parlour. Or that was on primetime wrestling. They would sometimes be in a studio without an actual crowd. Or or it's just me and Gene Oakland on that raised stage. And they always kept it separate from the actual ring itself. Similarly, when Jim Crockett Promotions would do World Championship Wrestling that we look at. That would be them doing the matches in the ring. And then for the most part, doing the promos by the screens and blurring the two together. But post-Raw, because it was, it was like it's a continuous night from the start to the finish... And then we come to the Vince Russo era and the Attitude era. And it's funny because as much as we always like to obsess about wrestling matches and, you know, the Melts Five Star Project has just been us talking about matches. <laughs> I've always thought it was very significant that when John Oliver did his piece about WWE and the sleazy practices of Vince McMahon and championed his love of wrestling, like the stuff that he enjoyed, pretty much everything that he showed were angles yeah there weren't matches it was steve austin using a beer hose on vince mcmahon and the rock kurt angle using a milk hose on steve austin the rock shoving vince mcmahon's head into rikishi's asshole yeah you know? <laughs> all of those sort of things and i think that when people talk about wrestling you know they i think that's what they when people like are imitating wrestling they're as likely to be doing someone cutting a promo or someone hitting someone with a chair, or a heel turn. Like, heel turn is becoming part of the lexicon yeah. outside of wrestling now. Even kayfabe is starting to be spoken of in outside of wrestling, which is surreal to me. <laughs> That's where we've been going increasingly with wrestling merging with the with the media and being part of the mainstream in a way that I never thought was going to happen. 
just before we were recording this, we've been talking about how Simon's a big American football fan and the Super Bowl and the you know the quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs. His first post is him holding a WWE Championship belt and the Vince Lombardi Trophy. That's a branding you can only dream of. But again, just part of the mainstream. And the Sami Zayn face turn seems to have had an impact on a scale. Like the last time there was something of a similar effect that maybe people will memeify and people will understand outside of wrestling is every time someone's suddenly lost like an undefeated run in like football or whatever, they'll always do now Brock Lesnar defeating the Undertaker streak, you know? Yeah, yeah. And again, that's something where it's like everything's post-match. That's what you remember about it. The match itself is, you know, Undertaker got his bell rung and they had a pretty low standard match, especially for the caliber of matches Undertaker was having at recent WrestleManias at that time. Mm. Mm. So all that people are remembering is the crowd reaction, Brock Lesnar even being amazed and then really enjoying himself. <laughs> and and the sign of the graphics saying 21 and 1. That is a where were you when you re- like saw that moment. And again, match angles, so blurred. Then when you got to the Attitude Era, that was just angles, basically. That was two hours of angles. Matches would be no more than five minutes long, really. Mm-hmm. And what was funny was it was a fan base that didn't really care about wrestling. Like I said, my mate, he loves everything about wrestling except for wrestling. <laughs> well, he doesn't love it, but he enjoys it. The match he can tolerate watching is the Royal Rumble because things change constantly. And that's a match that can have multiple angles within the match going on. Yeah. As different feuds come in, as different characters come in, as different parts, portions of the match as it goes along. Uh, Like you can have Rikishi having his run in the 2000 Royal Rumble, which even includes a dance break in the middle of it. That, that's gold. You can... you can have The Undertaker wiping everyone out and then suddenly this eight-foot guy dressed like a caveman comes out and attacks him. And, and throw, you know, the, like that happened at 93. Or you can have Kane wipe everyone out until the people from the insane asylum try to straightjacket him and get him back <laughs> out. Or you can have Bobby Heenan having regular close panic attacks throughout the entire match. <laughs> Oh, well, Vince winning the Rumble in of itself was an angle, really. Yeah, that was one massive angle. Well, I was saying, I remember always saying that, like, everyone was always being driven crazy by the angles and the storylines that Vince McMahon was doing in WWE in recent years. But pay-per-views would often be better than people necessarily expected because pay-per-views always have maintained the format of a wrestling card. And even though the WWE had terrible storylines, they still had really good wrestlers. And so if you just put those wrestlers in and they had to have wrestling matches, sure, there'd still be some restrictions placed upon them. So that's why AJ Styles and Shinsuke Nakamura at Wrestle Kingdom and AJ Styles and Shinsuke Nakamura at WrestleMania is a difference. But you still had really good matches. Daniel Bryan was still having great matches, maybe not reaching the heights of what he did in Ring of Honor and has subsequently done in AEW, but still having really good matches. Whereas the only time I can think of a pay-per-view that you could argue was angles over matches and is seen as a good one. It's, it's a real, I guess it's a Marmite pay-per-view. Do you know which one I'm going to go with? No, no, not off the top of my head, no. It's the 1998 Survivor Series. I think to many people that's either the zenith of Russo wrestling or it's just a match, it's a show with like no match that goes over two and a half stars and only one match, I think, it goes over 10 minutes. And that's the Deadly Game Tournament for the WWE Championship. Oh, right, right, right. So you've got all these things. You've got 
the rock seeming to be constantly trying to trip him up by the corporation but then you realize in hindsight when the final reveal comes that it was all one big plot you know they take out they bring the big boss man to face him in the first round when triple h can't make it but then the rock surprises him quote unquote with a small package so he wins the match in three seconds Mm. then he has a match with ken shamrock big boss man throws in a nightstick that the rock just happens to be able to intercept and win the match you know kane gets the undertaker disqualified in the survivor series and then suddenly the rock applies a sharpshooter and no one's submitting to that piece of shit sharpshooter <laughs> <laughs> i knew i knew you were going to make a comment on the sharpshooter but there were just angles on top of angles you had Dwayne gill being brought out as a mystery opponent you had shane mcmahon turning heel on steve austin after having got him back into the tournament and I think it was those moments where it was everything was shot twist on twist on twist, but everything just about made sense. But Vince Russo didn't seem to get that they needed to make sense. He figured if I just shock you... I've done my job. If Vince Russo was in charge of the the, the bloodline storyline, he'd have probably had Sami Zayn turn heel and face several times in this whole thing. <laughs> you know, he'd have done the opposite. He'd have had Sami Zayn turn heel and form a new bloodline and... Roman Reigns' bloodline would suddenly be babyface. <laughs> bloodline Canada. <laughs> or like another example of that, like the one would be, would be the, the first Nitro of the Russo-Bischoff era, which establishes the new blood against the Millionaires Club. And it's just relentless. Like Mike Awesome attacks Kevin Nash. The, all the titles get vacated. Eric Bischoff attacks Hulk Hogan, siding with Billy Kidman, setting up a few between those two. Shane Douglas turns up and attacks Ric Flair. And right at the end, Bret Hart's suddenly there, and they don't know whose side he's on. And he couldn't even wrestle anyway, so it didn't matter. <laughs> and with Vince Russo, it was just the idea of that short, sharp shock, but no lineage, no consistency. no Nowhere to go with it. No. just It was always the sake of, what can we do now? And Paul Heyman, some would argue, was kind of like that, that he would do these amazing angles, but... He would either hold things off for so long that they couldn't get a good payoff, or when he planned to have the payoff, everything fell apart. Either someone would get, you know, they would leave the company or they would get injured. Like, he milked Rob Van Damme's reign with the ECW TV Championship for two years before he's put him into a series with Mike Awesome. And then he, then Rob Van Damme breaks his leg and Mike Awesome leaves for WCW like a couple of weeks later. <laughs> <sighs> I, I definitely think Paul Heyman's got his a lot of creative input into this whole bloodline story. They've pretty much said. Yeah. There's a lot of the best of ECW in Paul Heyman. That was the other one I was considering putting in as a five-star angle, which was Jerry Lawler turning up in the ECW arena and then beating the shit out of Tommy Dreamer and the whole ECW locker room trying to get him and he can't. they can't get him because of Sabu and Rob Van Dam are his hitmen and even paul Heyman comes out and jerry laws you know says that line this bingo hall should be made out of toilet paper because there's nothing in it but shit <laughs> and like borderline riots being set up even new jack comes out with the music so they keep escalating it new jack comes out with the music but even he can't get in and then finally taz's music plays and rob van Dam, jerry lawler and bill alfonso voluntarily and sabu at much urging just leave at that point <laughs> and what's even amazing about all that is that happens literally after tommy dreamer finally beats raven for the quote-unquote first time but if you look at the host show records in the start of their feud it wasn't but you know 
for the sake of what the storyline they've done. He beats Raven in a loser leaves town. So it's like, which is always the case with Tommy Dreamer. They give him a final moment of triumph and snatch it away from him immediately. Yeah. So he's like, he doesn't even get that moment of happiness. Like, just after one great obstacle in front of him, he's been able to vanquish. A literally an even bigger one turns up in front of him. And that was also when they were doing the whole blacking out the lights, which AEW now does so much. And suddenly someone appearing, you know, unexpectedly. Whoever they are, whoever it is that the lighting guys, like, why does this guy, how, what is this guy's asking rates? He put him on. <laughs> And then it was like, Jim Cornette was like, oh, we need to keep doing a big surprise. Otherwise people will be upset. And he says, if people keep expecting a surprise, then it stops being a, a surprise. surprise. Yeah. <laughs> so it's that hot shotting thing. And that's the problem. It's the nature of the beast, but it is also a case of if you keep going for that short thrill, then it doesn't get a long-term payoff. And to be fair to wrestling now, you are getting much more longer-term storylines. Back in 98, 99 WWF, I mean, every belt was getting changing hands mm. every other week. And in recent years, we've gone back to, outside of the TNT Championship, AEW has really liked to book long-term title reigns, to the point they can overrun, like Britt Baker's run with the belt. Or, yeah. You know, arguably... Uh, Kenny Omega's run maybe went a bit longer than it, at least his body could take. Yeah, but when you're defending four titles, that'll be why. Do you think angles are as good as they ever were, or do you think it's just the nature of the beast? Like, do you think there will be as many five star angles in this decade as there were in the 80s or the 90s? All those times, you know, the Attitude Era and everyone's nostalgic about it. But it's like, you know, the beer bath. Like, that was one I was thinking, well, is that a five-star angle? Because it's just, like, because it's so silly. It doesn't even progress anything, but it's just a visual that's incredible. Or, like, um, or just moments, like Austin taking that Zamboni. That's always, I think that's always been my favourite visual of the entire Austin McMahon storyline, was McMahon takes the title from him at last, and he's going to do a championship awarding ceremony. And Austin just turns up on a Zamboni. There's literally a fl- like a line of police officers, but because of the size of the Zamboni, he's able to leap over them and get off. <laughs> See, to, that's the thing. That is, I think that's more of a pertinent moment than the beer bath. But the beer bath is just funny and silly and stupid. To go back to the hospital angle, there's him going, oh, I'll stick, you know, that thing up your bottom. That's part of it, which is just like silliness. The infamous sound that the bedpan makes, that, that will live it in like history. But as you mentioned, the key part of the angle is I can always get to you. You can, you can surround yourself with as many hired goons as you want. You can think you're safe wherever you want. I'll find you. <laughs> well, it was also just always a perfect symbol that of Austin being this blue-collar man because it did just seem like he could run any kind of vehicle, any kind of vehicle or machinery he was just capable of operating. Yeah. Again, pa- placing him in the manual labourer image, mm. which was so perfect. And again, that's why I thought it was so clever that he's presented as the blue-collar ideal and Mick Foley in his shirt was kind of like this white-collar, you know, I'll just take His run-down shirt and battered tie. <laughs> Mick Foley's like, if you put a pro wrestler into the movie Office Space... That's what he's like, or the office in many ways. Mick Foley's just like a hard gill from The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of that too. <laughs> uh, obviously, that I mean, that's another great five-star angle as well. Uh, Mick Foley 
just removing his mankind mask and his shirt to reveal that he's now Cactus Jack. And Triple H shitting himself. Yeah. That would be another great candidate for a five-star angle as well. Will Mankind's title win? That's more angle than match, really. Are the angles what make American wrestling great? Really? It, it, like, when you think American wrestling, is it is it really... Like, if you ask the general public, what they enjoy more than wrestling matches are these crazy angles. The soap opera element to it. There's a great quote from John Cena of, like, what's the point in slamming someone on... If no one cares. Well, if you're John Cena, according to the Fast and the Furious trailer, you can bloody F you someone onto one floor and they'll smash through onto the floor beneath. <laughs> well, Fast and the Furious canon is very different. <laughs> yeah. Look out, Oscars. There's your new front runner. Yeah. Well, I don't know if Gwyneth Paltrow gets behind it. It seems to work. I've, I've always said that I don't need the WWE to produce provide me with numerous five-star matches i don't need that from them that's not what i've ever really expected from them outside of bret hart and Shawn michaels like i want compelling characters in fun storylines that's what i want from wwe i want to be entertained by it you want i can get my great matches i can there are more than enough great matches out there that have already happened that i can work through for the rest of my life and Japan will always give great matches above all. And their angles and their stories are told within the matches themselves, really. You know, Tetsuya Naito, is there even a, much of an angle that you can relate to what we've both kind of said in the past is maybe the greatest wrestling storyline ever, which is his ascent? Like, the only angles I can think of are, like, him throwing the championship belts and walking away without it after winning it. And caring more about his hat. <laughs> and, and new members of the Los Ingobernables joining him as time goes on. And the, yeah, him caring about his hat. You can fit all of that into a Monday Night Raw. You know, it's not within the New Japan format of where every show is just a card, a wrestling card, with a couple of things in between. There's never been a Toriyanu's noodle bar interview segment on it. You know? Yeah, a great. I think what we're trying to say is a great angle is something which encapsulates a character regardless of whether it's actually a great angle at all and it's actually if you look at it completely silly so a good example i've got for that is the live sex celebration that edge and lita had well it's memorable if nothing else that but but he he obviously coined himself the rated r superstar and what would a rated r superstar do to be rated r i don't know if you know about what the american censorship board but that's harder any, any kind of actual sex that angers them more than anyone getting their arm blown off or any violence or anything yeah it's the tlc matches that would have made edge rated r <laughs> the live sex celebration but it was in keeping with his character austin attacking mcmahon obviously blending in so much as a common man that he could get through into the hospital the idea of edge just being kind of this just this dickhead like rock star basically yeah, he's kind of like Axel Rose when he just got completely up his own ass. Yeah, I think Axel Rose... Very quickly into Axel Rose. Yeah, Axel Rose having sex with a stripper is on one of the Guns N' Roses recordings, so it's almost eerily similar in terms of like presentation. Yeah. Yeah, I... You've got Hang- like Hangman, for example, like the moment where he costs the Young Bucks by holding one of them because he's been gaslit by FDR... It's his response in that like, post-match angle which encapsulates Hamman as a character. It's like, 
oh, people have played on my like insecurities and that. Uh, because I'm insecure, that makes that get, that doesn't make me a weak person, but it means there's weaknesses that I have to work on. With the Sami Zayn character at Hangman Page, and now to an extent Jey Uso, it's been a rare instance of the WWE actually being willing to have a babyface or or a sympathetic character with character flaws, or those character flaws coming to be something that you love about them. The fact that Zayn is so brilliantly able to gradually evolve to being likable after being so annoying because he's sincere and everyone can get the idea of wanting to be part of the cool kids and not being accepted and everyone can get the sense of like you know manipulating someone who's innocent you know the the other example of that would be like triple h and eugene but that's obviously of a much more unacceptable way of doing it but that first angle there was a lot of fun in there if you can get past the fact of what eugene's character is meant to be yeah but the idea of Triple H knowing that he's this guy's favorite wrestler and manipulating him to it, you know, there's, like I said, this is like an improvement on that, just as like so much of the bloodlines and improvements on where the NWO went wrong, or we hope it will be. Mm. Obviously, so much of that again is like less political sway. So because wrestlers had less political sway, then Vince McMahon gets to do whatever he wants, and no one says no to his dumbass shit <laughs> which austin would never do austin maybe one of the reasons that there aren't that many austin mcmahon angles that went wrong is because it was a combination of vince russo but vince russo being filtered vince mcmahon before vince mcmahon had gone completely off his rocker and just no one would question him anymore and a very forthright steve austin who would stand up for himself and was a very great creative force himself and and a character that was so strong and so over that vince couldn't hurt him in the same way that he can just go yeah Zack Ryder wear that neck brace be in that wheelchair are you gonna are you gonna question how stupid you gonna look no well that's what's happening buddy there's a great moment in the Stone Cold interview of Vince McMahon that's on the WWE Network of Vince would be like so you would go up and like read the script and go well I'm not doing that and then you were then people would ask you do you have any alternative ideas and Stone Cold would just go no you figure it out. <laughs> but, you know, some that's not necessarily his job. Yeah. But it will be his job to say it. Famously, when Harrison Ford was in the Star Wars movies, he told George Lucas, George, you can type this shit, but I can't say it. In the original draft of The Empire Strikes Back, after Leia says, I love you, Han Solo was supposed to say, I love you too. And they were like, that's bullshit. <laughs> Han so <wouldn't> instead. <laughs> Ham wouldn't say that. Ham would still get one up on yeah. Leia. <laughs> He's like, ah, you said it. I didn't say it. <laughs> but it's also his way of saying it without saying yeah. it as well. Yeah. But that's your example of, like, Harrison Ford isn't a screenwriter. Stone Cold Steve Austin isn't a WWE angle writer. He's not a booker. But he knows what his character is. Yeah. And at the same time, you do have to, you know, sometimes say no to them. And sometimes when you don't say no to them... You end up pushed off a stage by Kane. <laughs> yeah. Or you end up in the Codyverse. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's going to be a curious thing as well. Is Cody going to work better in WWE? Because be, he will make inputs, but Triple H will say no. And there are other people that are of equal creativity but working within that framework cody was always wwe guy you know as he used to call himself the three-star general but you know he's made it work we're coming around towards the end of this now tell you what though to go back to one of the things that we said the need for angles in wrestling especially to draw in an audience 
How much was it driving us crazy how World of Sports WOS was presenting itself? Oh. It was just four matches, almost next to no promos, no reason to understand or like these characters. And the wrestling was okay, but then the way that it was edited and filmed and presented, but that's a whole other thing. There's no way you, they shouldn't have had at least one or two angles every episode. Why, why should I have cared about Justin Sizem? That was never explained to me. Great athlete, not slagging him off in terms of his in-ring work whatsoever. But the presentation of World of Sport is, why should I care about you? <laughs> it's just things like that that need, they just needed to establish characters. You can't just do that in the ring. You, you need them to have the microphone to express themselves. And you need to have some fun. And you need to, Some people aren't necessarily going to be drawn into it for the wrestling. But if you put across the soap opera aspect of it... Yeah. I said there was a version of ITV wrestling that could have been as kitschily popular as a show about baking or a show about dancing or a show about other people watching telly <laughs> you know, or a show about famous people singing but they're masked and they might be famous for singing but they might not. But sometimes they're dressed as bin bags. Yeah. And sometimes they're Stephen Hendry. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> So, it's not like wrestling's any more absurd than those things, but you need to present it, you know. Not everyone's into pop music. Not everyone's into guessing games. But if you turn a show of pop songs into a guessing game, some... I've got the um, Ricky Gervais office, the putting the hands together thing now. Yeah. So, who knows? But that version of it was never good. Like I said, you know, to make a success on a primetime ITV wrestling show in 2016 or whenever it was, was such a threading, and like, the thinnest thread through the tiniest needle. And they decided to wear coal miners' gloves whilst doing it. Oh, and, and that was the last thing I was going to ask you. Can you have a, an angle that was five stars even though the storyline kills it off? Or does the storyline improve upon an angle? Because it's curious that you go with the shield breaking up. As a five-star angle. Because the week that happened, people were pissed off. And not in a positive way of like, I want Dean Ambrose to get his revenge on Seth Rollins. They were like, Triple H has pulled a political play. He looks like the best guy again. Why have we built all this stuff up? There was so much more you could have done with the Shield. But because now, like we say, almost that that angle is almost redeemed by the Sami Zayn angle. And then repeating. Yeah. The echoes of it to well, this day that like this will still haunt Roman Reigns almost ten years later. If if you go down the rabbit hole of listening to public opinion immediately after an event, we're sort of going through this as this episode is being recorded because the acclaimed have just lost their AEW tag team titles, but not to like seven star FTR, not to the Young Bucks, not to not even to Swerve in Our Glory or Top Flight. Yeah. But to the gun club and people are like, this is a disgrace. That's the point. That was the point of the shield breaking up at that time. So does that make the argument that you can't rate an angle in isolation? Because I still think that the Nexus's first attack is one of the best angles in and of itself in the history of Raw, genuinely. No one saw it coming. Mm. It was filmed differently. The way they attacked them was different. It led to... There were so many possibilities. It seemed to immediately undo all the bad of all the terrible, insulting angles that they'd had to go through on NXT, all the assault courses and everything, because you can pay it off as that they were pissed off too. Arresting images like 
Daniel Bryan strangling someone with a tie, unfortunately. But then you think of the ripple effects of that. If that hadn't happened, well, we've got WrestleMania 30. You know, all these crazy things afterwards. Would would the Shield have been as brilliantly presented? Kind of like how the Batista storyline worked because the Randy Orton storyline didn't. Did they realise with the Shield, it's like, well, let's not make the same mistakes we did with the Nexus and let's do it good this time. Was it because they had three guys that they had a lot more faith in than they did fucking Darren Young and... Michael Tarver. Michael Tarver and... Skip Sheffield. Heath Slater. Well, they did have a lot of faith in Skip Sheffield. but Not when he was called Skip Sheffield, they didn't. So would you... Like, could I give that angle five stars, even though everything that afterwards... Because if we're going to say the NWO petered out, then Hogan's not five stars. Sting on them's not five stars. Because I will say... I will argue to this day, because I remember the reaction when it happened... The finger poke of Doom's angle could have been seen in hindsight as a great angle if all the subsequent storylines of Goldberg getting his revenge had worked. But by uncensored, they turned Hogan face over evil Ric Flair. And Goldberg was, you know, out with injuries and the NWO Wolfpack just slowly died out and Kevin Nash is a baby face by Doom wrestling randy savage and there's no nwo anymore all of a sudden and then they bring it back at the end of 99 for you know reasons and (laughs) they needed they needed to sell t-shirts if they'd have done the story where over a six to twelve month period that the reason the finger poke of doom happened was ultimately because hogan wanted the belt back and he didn't think he could beat goldberg for it but then he thought well the nwo can protect me and it was an elite nwo that was the point of the wolf pack that it was going to be a washing down of it. You know, it was just Hogan, Nash, Hall, Steiner, Luger. Disco Inferno was like their mascots. And, you know, Buff Bagwell. And that was like an elite. That was an elite in, in and of WCW at that point. And Goldberg had just gone through them one after the other after the other until either Bash of the Beach or Starcade or whatever you wanted to pay it off. Like he did with Raven's Flock. Yeah. And he just wiped them all out. Hogan had no one left to save him. He loses, NWO officially disbands then, and then everyone goes their own ways afterwards. It could have worked. There's a version of that that works, yeah. But not in WCW when everyone was just crazy and they had creative control and no one was ever going to do that. So that's why the finger poke of Doom doesn't work. It's not because it was always going to suck. It sucked because of what happened afterwards. Just as the Nexus angle sucked after what happened afterwards but the angle in and of itself i think everyone should remember the finger poke of doom was not greeted with universal hatred and it definitely wasn't what the beginning of the end of wcw what happened afterwards was symbolic of why wcw where went where it went i think it's one of those things because it wasn't followed up on it just becomes endemic of well it's also one of those things this happened after this therefore that happened because of this a lot of, there's a lot of that in, in like discourse isn't there no a storyline doesn't have to be good for an individual angle to be good like a storyline doesn't have to have finished in a good way for an individual angle to be good i should say otherwise we'd have a much smaller pool to choose from really because out of the ones we've mentioned like you say like i picked we both picked an nwo one we've covered how that panned out the shield breaking up sort of stuttered due to roman reigns's uh wellness policy violation and their insistence on making dean ambrose some sort of like wacky clown man 
Yeah. Well, also they just completely did Roman Reigns dirty for years after that by making him keep on wearing his his shield uniform and coming out to shield music. It's like a divorced man still wearing his wedding ring yeah. two years afterwards. Yeah. It's a bit like that bloke in the pub who um, is in his late 60s. He's like, oh, I banged a page free girl. Cool. What have you done in the next 45 years of your Like 40 years of your life. <laughs> I told you that in confidence. <laughs> if the bloodline storyline peters out, a lot of people are expecting Sami Zayn to lose at Elimination Chamber and maybe... You know, it will never quite live up to the to the brilliance of that one. It is curious, like, I guess this is also a spiritual sequel to our Heel Turns episode because so many of the great angles, I suppose, are face and heel turns. But, you know, you can have good stuff within there. You have Miss Elizabeth coming back to save Macho Man. Yes, that's another one that was in contention. I should have written that one down as well. In terms of, like, you know, they're not all heel turns, but a lot are. Yeah, you are right. Yeah. I think this is one we could come back to again. This is one where you could have, like, if, if, if people get in touch with us with other angles that they think are five-star angles, maybe we'll talk about it. Maybe we'll include it in some extra content that we're, we're thinking of doing as we, as I say, we're getting closer and closer to that 200th five-star match, and we're going to do some things around that anyway. But we'll hold off of that, because there's another thing we need to go back to and complete, because another match has been announced. So for next week, Simon... What is coming back that really should have been finished beforehand until not strepe, strepe affected you <laughs> towards the tail end of 2022? Yes, we are. We've basically done some sort of inadvertent tantric podcasting with this. And now we're finally going to get you your uh, your sweet audio reward. We are going to carry on with rerun the rivalry. Yep. With the upcoming... IWGP World Heavyweight match, title match between Okada and Tanahashi announced for their Battle in the Valley, is that what it's called? We figured, well, let's go back to that the the matches we had left. We just picked up with the first match after uh, Okada had beaten Tanahashi at Wrestle Kingdom. So the previous one we'd done was the G1 Climax in 2016, and that was... The last match for nearly two years. And the next one we've got coming up is Okada wanting to defend the IWGP Heavyweight Championship for a record-breaking 11th time. He challenged the man who'd previously held the record of 10 successful defences, Hiroshi Tanahashi, in their first match in two years. And don't worry, folks, because... There is a good reason that this is a good time to pick up. It was a great, it was good timing of any time for us to like stop at one point and start at the other because we are coming oh so close to Kokada. Oh, baby! <laughs> but until then, if you want to get in touch with you, Simon, with any suggestions of five star angles or suggestions of what, if you're going to follow the logic of things happening because of other things happening, rocks that will save you from lion attacks, (laughs) how can they do so? Uh, They can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of visitors Vince McMahon had in the hospital. Obviously the clown, Mick, and Stone Cold. My name is Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N, as in the first two letters of angle 
That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox. If you put in at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lntyspod at gmail.com. LNTYspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point except I'm your acute Lorca Mullen. I'm your obtuse Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five-star week. Until the next week. Yeah.